Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, welcome to The Tent. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. Among the many, many interesting ideas that are floating around in the botanical-style aquarium world is the idea that use of botanical materials can help provide supplemental, or primary in some instances, supplemental or primary food sources for our fishes. We've touched on this idea for years now. I know we've talked about it a lot. And the more we play with these aquariums, the more I'm convinced that yet another collateral benefit of them is food production. Now, it's hardly a stretch to propose this, right? I mean, just like in nature, a typical botanical-style aquarium has an accumulation of organic materials, a healthy population of organisms to process them, and supports a large amount of life at many trophic levels. What's also studied by science, but a little more, I don't know, esoteric in the hobby, in my opinion, is the use of botanical materials as a supplemental food for our fishes. In other words, the materials themselves. Now, it's known that most plant materials have at least some nutritional value, or rather they contain nutrients, vitamins, etc., which are known to be beneficial to aquatic organisms. Now, which ones are the best for use as supplemental foods? Or are they all pretty good? Maybe? Well, here's the thing. (laughs) The thing that makes me curious is that most leaves and botanicals contain stuff like vitamins, amino acids, micronutrients, and other so-called bioavailable compounds. The real question I have is exactly how available they are to our fishes and shrimp from a nutritional standpoint, and how nutrient-dense these leaves and botanicals are. Do our fishes and shrimp easily assimilate all that they need in every bite? Or do they have to eat tons of this stuff to derive any nutritional benefits? Big questions, right? I mean, we as hobbyists sort of tend to make this gulp assumption that if these things are present in the botanicals and leaves, then our animals get a big dose of them in every bite, right? And it begs the question, are they directly consuming the stuff like, I don't know, alder cones and casuarina cones and stuff like that? Or are they feeding on something else? else on their surfaces, which we'll touch on later, as you probably guessed. I think it's yes on both, though. And the nutrition that they derive from uh, consuming them? Well, that's the part where I say, I don't know for sure. I mean, it seems to make a lot of sense to me. However, there, uh, there must be some definitive scientific information out there to prove this hypothesis, right? I don't know. A lot of this botanicals for food thing in the hobby, and, and seriously, it's a thing now, it comes from the world of shrimp keepers. Now, they've been touting this stuff in the hobby for a long time. A lot of it's based on the presence of materials like leaves and stuff in their wild habitats where shrimp are found. I did some research online, you know, that internet thing. I think it might just catch on. And I learned that the in the aquaculture of food shrimp, a tremendous variety of vegetables, fruits, and stuff like that are utilized. And many offer good nutritional profiles for shrimp in terms of protein and amino acids, stuff like that. They're all pretty good. Uh, our friend Rachel O'Leary did a good job of touching on the benefits of botanicals for shrimp in a, in a video that she did a while back. And I thought that might be an interesting resource for somebody to look at. But which one is best? 
Is there one? Does it matter? In fact, other than sorting through, you know, mind-numbing numbers, you know, 0.08664, etc., on various amino acid concentrations and say, I don't know, mulberry leaves versus, say, sugar beets or catapa leaves or whatever, there's not huge differences making any one food superior to all others, at least from my very cursory, non-scientific, you know, hobbyist-level examination. Now, leaves like guava, mulberry... Uh, etc. are ravenously consumed directly by shrimp. They appear to actually physically tear it apart and eat it, and even some fishes. And it's known by scientific analysis that they do contain compounds like vitamins B1, B2, B6, and vitamin C, as well as carbohydrates, fiber, amino acids, and elements like magnesium, potassium, zinc, iron, calcium, all that stuff, all important for many organisms, including shrimp. Guava leaves are particularly good, according to some of the materials that I read, Apparently, the bulk of the nutrients they contain are more readily available to animals than other leaves. Well, that's pretty important, isn't it? I think so. Now, it may be coincidental that these much-loved, at least by the shrimp, uh, these much-loved leaves happen to have such a good amount of nutritional availability, but it certainly doesn't hurt, right? Other leaves, such as jackfruit, for example, contain polynutrients, or phytonutrients, excuse me, like lignans, isoflavins, and saponins that have health benefits that are wide-ranging for humans. There's some conflicting data regarding jackfruit's alleged antifungal properties. However, the leaves are thought to exhibit a broad spectrum of antibacterial activity. In traditional medicine, these leaves are used to help heal wounds as well. In humans. (laughs) Again, do these properties transfer over to our fishes and shrimp? Here's the straight answer. We are not aware of any scientific studies that have been completed to correlate this one way or another. That being said, these organisms seem to flock to these leaves and graze on them, and on the biofilms which accumulate on their surface tissues. The shrimp side of the hobby reminds me in some ways of the coral part of the reef keeping hobby where I spent considerable time, both personally and professionally, working and interacting with the community. There's some incredibly talented shrimp people out there, many doing amazing work and sharing their expertise and experience with the hobby to everybody's benefit. And now there's also a lot of people out there in that world, unfortunately vendors specifically, who make some, and again, this is just my opinion based on observation, they make some, well, stretches about products and such, where and what they can do and why they are supposedly great for shrimp. I see a lot of this in the food sections of the you know, of, of the hobby specialty where manufacturers of various foods extol the virtues of different types of products and natural materials because they have certain nutritional attributes like vitamins and amino acids, just like we talked about above, again, valuable to human nutrition, which are also known to be beneficial to shrimp in some manner. I mean, do shrimp really derive benefits from stuff like nettles and stuff that you see used as food in shrimp? I don't know. Perhaps they contain micronutrients or other compounds which are known to be beneficial to these organisms. And that's fine, but where it gets a bit anecdotal, or let's call it like it is, a little bit sketchy, is when I read the descriptions about stuff like leaves and such on the vendors' websites which cater to these animals, making these really broad and expansive claims about their benefits based simply on the fact that shrimp seem to eat them and that they contain substances and compounds known to be beneficial from a generic nutritional standpoint, you know, like in humans. (laughs) Again, all well-meaning, not intention to do harm to consumers, I'm sure. But perhaps, occasionally, just a bit of a stretch in my humble opinion. And I just wonder if we stretch and assert too much sometimes in the hobby. 
I'm not saying that it's bad to make inferences. We do it all the time with various topics, but we qualify them with stuff like, it could be possible that, or I wonder if. But I can't stand when absolute assertions are made without any qualification that just because this leaf has some compound, which is part of a family of compounds that are thought to be useful to shrimp or that shrimp devour them, that it's perfect food for them. It's just a food, one of many possibilities out there. Of course, I hope I'm not out there adding to the confusion. Maybe I am. We try to hold ourselves to a little higher standards on this type of stuff. Yet, like so many things we talk about in the world of botanicals, there's no absolutes here. It's still an evolving practice, even though we're many, many years into this. What is a fact is that some botanical and plant-derived materials, such as various seeds, root vegetables, etc., do have different levels of elements, such as calcium and phosphorus and widely varying crude protein. Stuff that's known to be beneficial to shrimp, of course. These things are known by science. Yet I have no idea what some of the seed pods that we offer as botanicals contain in terms of proteins and amino acids and make no assertions about the this aspect of them, above and beyond what I can find in scientific literature, which isn't all that much when it comes to a nutritional standpoint. However, I suppose that one can make some huge overgeneralizations that one seed pod or fruit capsule is somewhat similar to others in terms of their profile of basic amino acids, vitamins, trace elements, etc. I'm probably assuming too much, but we can certainly assume that some of this stuff, known to have nutritional value, can possibly make these materials potentially useful as a supplemental food source for fishes and shrimps. Yet, in my humble opinion, that's really the best we can do right now until some more scientific, rigid, specific studies are conducted. Now, we may not know which seed pods and such in terms of, you know, in and of themselves are, are more nutritious to fishes and shrimp than others, but we do know from simple observation that there are some that are better at recruiting materials on their surfaces, which serve as food sources for aquatic organisms. There's little disagreement on this topic. Yes, I'm talking about biofilms and fungal growth again, which make their appearances on our botanicals and leaves and wood after a few weeks of submersion. As we've talked about ad nauseum here, biofilms are not only typically harmless in aquariums, they're utilized as supplemental food by a huge variety of fishes and shrimps in both nature and in the aquarium. They're a rich source of sugars and other nutrients and could prove to be an interesting addition to a nursery tank for raising fry if kept in control. We'll talk about that later. Like, you know, add a bunch of leaves and botanicals, let them do their things and allow your fry to graze on them. Don't believe me? Well, ask almost any shrimp keeper. They'll sing the praises of biofilm for the grazing aspect. The shrimp definitely graze on this stuff. And a lot of fish do too. And of course, it's long been known from field studies that leaves and other plant materials, as they break down, they serve as fuel for the growth of biofilms, fungi, and various microorganisms, which in turn provide supplemental food for our fishes. I've seen a bunch of videos of shrimps and fishes in the wild grazing over fields of decomposing leaves in the biofilms and organisms that they foster. And we know from many years of personal experience and observation in the aquarium that fishes and shrimp will consume them directly, removing them from virtually any surface that they form on. And some materials are likely better than others at recruiting and accumulating biofilm growth. The biofilm-friendly botanical items seem to fall into several distinct categories. Botanicals with hard, relatively impermeable surfaces, softer, more ephemeral botanical materials which break down easily, and hard skin botanicals with soft interiors and... Okay, wait, that like covers everything, right? Yeah, pretty much. So what this tells me, the over-caffeinated, perhaps somewhat undereducated armchair aquatic ecologist wannabe, is that most of these botanicals that we play with, in addition to being potentially consumed directly by aquatic organisms, 
likely also have some capability of recruiting biofilms and fungal growth. And the idea of biofilms and such being an excellent supplemental food source for shrimp and fishes is not revolutionary. It's just something that we're finally getting around to agreeing with, um, you know, uh, about our, you know, agreeing with, with our little friends, the fish and the shrimp, and of course with the shrimp people. And don't get me started about fungal growths. Now, fungal growth in aquatic environments is absolutely essential for the function of the ecosystem. Again, an idea we've beaten the crap out of over many, many times. But scientists have determined that as much as 15% of decomposing biomass in many aquatic habitats is processed by fungi, according to one study that I found. Yeah, fungi, again. Fungi tend to colonize wood and botanical materials because they offer them a lot of surface area to thrive and live out their life cycle. And cellulose, hemocellulose, and lignin, the major components of wood and botanical materials, are degraded by fungi, which possess enzymes that can digest these materials. Fungi are regarded by biologists to be the dominant organisms associated with decomposing leaves and streams. So this gives you some idea as to why we see them in our aquariums, right? In aquarium work, we see fungal colonization and wooden leaves all the time. And most hobbyists will look away in sheer horror if they saw the extensive amount of fungal growth which occurs in the wild on their carefully selected, you know, artistically arranged wood pieces. Yet it's the most common, elegant, and beneficial process that occurs in nature. And fungi are absolutely essential for a huge variety of aquatic organisms, including fishes and shrimp. Like everyone. And biofilms and fungi don't just appear out of thin air, of course. Most of these life forms enter into aquatic food webs in the form of, wait for it, detritus. <laughs> yep, both fine and coarse particular organic matter are the main source of these materials. I suppose this explains why heavy accumulations of detritus and algal growth in aquaria seem to go hand in hand, right? Detritus is fuel for life forms of many kinds. Think about this when you set up your next botanical style aquarium. Incorporating botanical materials in our aquariums for the purpose of creating the foundation for biological activity is the starting point leaves, seed pods, twigs, and all that stuff are not only attachment points for bacterial biofilms and fungal growths to colonize on, they're physical location for the sequestration of the resulting detritus, which serves as a food source for many aquatic organisms, including our fishes. Consider every botanical, every leaf, every piece of wood, every substrate material that we utilize in our aquariums is a potential component of food production. The initial setup of your botanical style aquarium will rather easily accomplish the task of facilitating the colonization of said biofilms and fungal growths. There isn't all that much we have to do as aquarists to facilitate this, but to simply add these materials to our tanks and allow the appearance of these organisms to happen. And as I've said many times, we shouldn't obsess with removing every single bit of detritus, fungi, uneaten food, etc. Yeah, to facilitate these aquarium food webs, we need to avoid going crazy with the siphon hose. Simple as that, really. When you remove some of this stuff, you're literally stealing food from somebody's mouth. Well, or hyphae if you're a, a fungi, of course. Yeah, the idea of, I don't know, the idea of embracing the production of natural food sources in our aquariums is elegant, it's remarkable, and it's really not all that surprising. They'll virtually spontaneously arise in botanical-style aquariums almost as a matter of course with us not having to do much to facilitate it. What about fry now? Let's get back to that. Again, we've talked about this before, but can't the botanical-style aquarium replete with its complement of leaves and botanicals and the resulting biofilms and fungal growths feed batches of fish fry really easily? I think so. Our tanks seem like they could be the ultimate nursery for fry. 
I mean, everyone who breeds fishes has their own style of rearing, I get it. Some hobbyists like bare-bottom tanks, some prefer densely planted tanks. And I'm proposing the idea of rearing fishes in a botanical-style aquarium filled with leaves, some seed pods, and maybe some plants as well. This physically and functionally mimics, at least to some extent, the habitats in which many young fishes grow up in. And I think that's really important. My thinking is that the decomposition of, uh, of the leaves will not only provide material for the fishes to feed on and among directly, it'll foster the development of the aforementioned biofilms and fungal growths and provide a natural shelter for them as well, potentially eliminating or reducing stresses. In nature, many fry which don't receive parental care tend to hide in the leaves or the so-called biocover in their environment, and providing these natural conditions will certainly accommodate this behavior. Decomposing leaves can stimulate a certain amount of microbial growth with infusoria, as they say, or even the forms of bacteria becoming potential food sources for fry. I've read a few studies where phototrophic bacteria were added to the diet of larval fishes, producing measurably higher growth rates. Now, I'm not suggesting that your fry will gorge on the beneficial bacteria cultured in situ in your blackwater nursery and grow exponentially faster. However, I am suggesting that it might provide some beneficial supplemental nutrition at no cost to you. I've experimented with the idea of onboard food culturing in several aquarium systems over the past few years, which were stocked heavily with leaves, twigs, and other botanical materials for the sole purpose of culturing, maybe a better term is recruiting, biofilms, and small crustaceans, etc. via decomposition. I've kept a few species of small kerosens in these systems with no supplemental feeding whatsoever, and I've seen these guys as fat and happy as any I've kept, and I've talked about that before, haven't we? And it's the same with the beloved aquarium catch-all of infusoria that we just talked about. The, these organisms are likely to arise whenever plant matter decomposes in water. And in an aquarium with significant leaves and stuff like that, there's likely a higher population density of these ubiquitous organisms available to the young fishes, right? Now, I'm not fooling myself into believing that a large bed of decomposing leaves and botanicals in your aquarium will satisfy the total nutritional leaves, uh, needs of a, a big batch of kerosens, but it might just provide supplemental support. On the other hand, I've been playing with this recently in my Varzea setup, stocked with a rich compost of soil and decomposing leaves, rearing the annual killifish Nothalibius minimus with really great results. They grew with no supplemental food added. It's essentially an evolved version of those jungle tanks I reared killies in when I was a kid. A different sort of look and a function. These so-called permanent setup in which the adults and fry typically coexisted with the fry finding food among the natural substrate and other materials present in the tank. Or, of course, you could remove the parents after breeding. The choice is yours. I admit that it's not the most efficient way to rear fry in large numbers, but it's a cool experiment. I'd like to take the concept even further by seeding the tank with some Daphnia, Cyclops, and perhaps some of the other commonly available live freshwater crustaceans and amphipods and copepods and stuff like that, and letting them do their thing before the fry arrive. This way you've got sort of the makings of a little bit of a food web going on and small crustaceans helping to feed off some of the available nutrients and lower life forms and the fish at the top of it all. Now granted, I'm totally romancing and perhaps even oversimplifying this a bit. However, I think that there's a compelling case to be made for creating a rearing tank that supports a biologically diverse set of inhabitants for food sources. The basis of it all would be leaves and some of the botanicals which seem to do a better job at recruiting biofilms. The harder shelled, the harder surface stuff, like jackfruit leaves, 
yellow mangrove leaves, guava leaves, cas- you know, Carinianna pods, disexilium pods, etc. I think these would be interesting items to include in a nursery tank. And of course, they provide shelter and foraging and impart some tannins into the water, you know, the usual stuff. It's fun to play with these ideas or evolve old ones like this. Obviously, this isn't the ultimate fry breeding technique. However, it's just another one of those ideas to have in our arsenal of skills that would be fun for serious or even casual fish breeders to experiment more with. I think it's one where we have seriously legit basis for playing with more and more. (laughs) Nothing's wasted in nature, right? In the wild aquatic habitats that we love so much, food webs are vital to the organisms which live in them. They're an absolute model for ecological interdependencies and processes which encompass the relationship between terrestrial and aquatic environments. We should embrace this in our aquarium work and do our best to facilitate the processes which can lead to the development of food webs in our tanks for fishes at all stages of life. The botanical style aquarium is literally optimized to provide benefits like food production by the very existence of its operating system, decomposing botanical materials. Let's take advantage of this. Let's try not to make too many assumptions and assertions, at least not without doing some of our homework and, you know, field work in our aquariums. As hobbyists, let's continue to experiment, observe from, learn from, and share our experiences and observations with everybody. We all win from that. In fact, that's likely the one absolute assertion I will make. Stay curious, stay disciplined, stay objective, stay experimental, stay creative, and always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Fellman. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tin.